0: We've been looking for these last several weeks at the work of God in the life of this individual, history names as Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha. And we've been studying this particular passage repetitiously because it has so many different layers of meaning. We've been discovering, I think, that this story is really not just about Jesus and this Uh, family back in the first century, it is also a story about us, about the important issues and the opportunities that go on in our lives as well. And today we're going to come back to the story which is found in John chapter 11 at a critical moment uh, in the life of the family there. Jesus has heard that his very close friend Lazarus has died. He has wept hot tears With Lazarus' sisters and friends over his loss. And then he's asked to be taken to the grave, to the place where the body of Lazarus has been laid in a tomb, and we pick up the story at that point, John chapter 11. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But, but Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? I want to think with you today about the subject of transformation. I want, before we leave here, to help each of us grasp something more about the remarkable process by which God enters into a human life and a community of people and brings about change, renewal, how God meets people who have been afflicted, by the stain of sin or of death, by the darkness and decay of the human condition and makes of them a new creation, a changed being. This is what I want to think about further with you today. Maybe you know somebody who needs that kind of renewal. Maybe they're sitting right next to you today and you don't even want to look over at them because you're thinking, boy, I'd love it if they would change. Maybe they're thinking that about you. Regardless, there's a message in our study today that will make a difference for all of us. The first idea that I want to gift you with, I think, is the very best one of all, and that is simply this. Jesus has the power we need to transform our lives. Why is that such very good news for a lot of us? Well, simply because many of us here have tried pretty hard to change ourselves, but with extremely limited success. Chances are the resolutions that we made just a few months ago to alter ourselves in some critical way have, have failed and faded as even faster than our March Madness brackets failed and faded, as so many have. Uh, Many of us have found ourselves unable, actually, to get control of those tendencies that we wanted to alter. We've been unable to, to really affect the character or the conduct pattern changes that we actually intended to. And even if we are fooling ourselves about our progress, we're probably Pretty much still having the same effect on other people around us, and they would tell us the truth if we asked them. The most self aware amongst us, I'm going to guess, can probably identify some with the famous confession of the Apostle Paul when he wrote, I have the desire to do what is good. I really have this desire, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do I keep on doing. What a wretched person I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is so subject to death? What Paul is understanding there is that the very things in our personality, structure, and character that that we can't seem to change are part of a fundamental condition this condition the Bible calls sin that ultimately in its fullest outworking leads also to death. And then Paul adds a P.S. to this confession. And he goes on to say that he's hanging fast to the reality that in despite this fundamental condition of his, there is good news. And he says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, if you remember nothing else that I'm going to say or that others have said throughout this series, I'm hoping you're going to take this away with you. The main message of the story of Lazarus is that Jesus has the power for deliverance that human beings are desperately seeking. If we allow him to, Jesus can transform our politics. I want to hear an amen for that because we need some transformation in our politics. Jesus can transform our family, our work life, the plight of the poor, the course of race relationships, the health of our environment, and even our physical bodies after they are dead. Jesus can resurrect all things and make them new again. Jesus once said, I am the vine And you are the branches, and if you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit, fruit that will last, for apart from me, you can do nothing. In other words, I have the power, said Jesus. I have the authority, the capacity, the resource to lead you into the life of greater flourishing for which you were originally made. But here, I think, is where things get a little bit more complicated. We have to hold on with one hand to this reality that he is our hope. That he is the one who will do what we do not know how to do for ourselves. We need to hold on to that idea. And then with the other hand, we also need to hold on to the truth that there is something also required of us. Transformation requires looking inside. It requires our looking inside. In a way that can be uncomfortable, messy, even miserable, Jesus is calling us to a deeper sense of self-awareness. As the story of Lazarus suggests, it involves getting up close and personal with, with stuff about us That actually stinks, to put it in its most common vernacular. In the modern book that has inspired this whole series of reflections we've been doing through the season of Lent, author Stephen W. Smith tells the story of a friend named Thomas who worked for a property company, a property management company. And and Thomas was dropped off by his boss one day at a particular apartment building, and he was asked to to go in there and to go up to a certain apartment number and to get that place cleaned up and cleaned out in preparation for new tenants to come in. What the boss did not give uh, to Thomas in detail was the fact that the last tenants had been evicted for cause— and when, and when Thomas walks in and opens the door of that apartment, he is confronted with a scene of absolute disaster. There's this overwhelming stench in the place. He finds the, the garbage cans overflowing with trash. There's evidence that there were cats and dogs in this place. I mean, a lot of cats and a lot of dogs, and they've left their you know, residue on stuff. Like, in every room. But this whole scene is nothing compared to what Thomas finds when he goes into the kitchen and walks across the sticky floor and opens the refrigerator. And then slams it shut again. Because the power to this apartment has been shut off for weeks. And inside of that refrigerator box was the remains of what had once been food. Only now it wasn't anything like food. One crack of the fridge door uh, produced a stench of rotting that made Thomas just start retching. And he had to back away, slam the door back away and just get control of his stomach and then go back again. And then over the next hours, He would open the door, he would reach in, grab something out, he would study what it was in his hand, he would deal with it, he would dispose it, and then he would wipe the space down with bleach. And this took a very long time, an item at a time, as he took it out and eventually got to the point where he could leave the door completely open, wash the space down, and let the light and the air do its final work of cleansing that space. I think of that kind of awful process when I hear Martha warning Jesus, don't open that door. Don't open that tomb. By this time, Jesus, there is a bad odor. There are all kinds of buried things Besides bodies. Many years ago, I was living in a San Francisco area and the evening news there carried the report of an incredible calamity that had taken place at the San Francisco airport. Uh, apparently a group of construction workers had been commissioned to repair a a section of uh, old runway and they had gone after it with their jackhammer when all of a sudden the ground beneath their feet erupted in this huge geyser of flame, a massive explosion. Providentially or coincidentally, uh, I was in premarital counseling with the construction foreman of that particular crew, And the next week, he came to my office with his fiancée, and we sat down. and, And before we went into the discussion about their marriage preparations, I said to him, Bob, tell me about this. What in the world happened out there? And he explained to me that they had been commissioned to repair that particular spot, but that when they dug down, what no one had warned them about was that there was an old fuel line underneath that particular section of runway that wasn't on anybody's map, on nobody's chart. And the old fuel line ran to an old fuel tank that was still filled with this nasty rotting old fuel. And so when the jackhammer hit that line, the the, the nasty fumes that were in that fuel tank ignited and, and the stinking fumes from the buried fuel tank sparked and blew up in the worker's face. Now I want to invite you to put all three of these images together. I want you to think of the refrigerator in that apartment and the fuel tank in that ground and the tomb of Lazarus in Bethany and ask yourself, what do they have in common? What unites them, those three images? They each contained some pretty, messy, stinking stuff, didn't they? Sort of like the kind of stuff that gets boxed up or buried within our lives sometimes, too. Maybe, maybe nobody listened to us when we were growing up. Maybe nobody gave us the affirmation that we really needed to be our healthiest in life. Or maybe we actually got our way far too easily and they paid way too much attention to us and it conditioned us that way as well. Or maybe somebody that we should have been able to trust to really count on used us or abused us or perhaps we absorbed the idea that we were really only as good as our last performance Or as the way we looked physically. Perhaps we were deprived of resources that we absolutely hungered for. Maybe we learned to depend upon substances instead of people. Because we found the high we got from those things more dependable than people. Maybe we suffered a, a crippling, devastating loss along the way. These sorts of realities, and they're not uncommon ones, have this way of festering inside of us, of, of in a sense, decaying and rotting inside of us until they begin to emit these sort of noxious kind of fumes of, of anger, perhaps, or of arrogance, or of mistrust, maybe of envy, addiction, greed, lust, insecurity... Gluttony, maybe even a lingering sense of sadness or of apathy. These can be among the fumes that emit from our lives or from the people whose lives we know. And sometimes they build up so much that with a single spark, they suddenly erupt. Have you ever been in one of those conversations with somebody and you're going along and you push a little bit too hard and all of a sudden, blammo, they respond in a way that seems so disproportionate to the circumstances, to what was actually said. What's going on there? You've hit the fuel tank. You hit the fuel line. Perhaps this is partly why the first words that we hear from Jesus in our text for today are these. Take away the stone. Take away the stone. In effect, open the door. Let's let some light and air in there. If you study the New Testament, you notice that this request is actually a very frequent pattern in the life of Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is always trying to open the door of people's lives, uh, to, to get inside, to look inside. You see him taking the time. He's, he's in interacting with the Gerasene demoniac, this, this crazed person that's doing damage to himself and to other people. And you see Jesus stopping him and asking to know the name of the particular demon that's afflicting him. Jesus wants to see behind the door. Another time you see Jesus stopping at the well of Samaria and he encounters the woman who's coming there and you see him probing and asking these questions and teasing her and leading her forward to the ultimate confession that she is a serial adulterer and this is why her life is so lonely and so hard. We see it when He challenges Peter to look at his besetting sin, which is this noxious, dominating kind of pride. And in none of these encounters Jesus has is it easy for the other person, even fun for the other person. None of us likes to face the rotten stuff, the stinking stuff that builds up inside of us, but it is an essential step in the process of transformation. There is no changing without facing and getting a hold of this rotten stuff. Change can begin when we start to name and recognize what is deadly, dead, or decaying inside of us. So I want to just go from preaching to meddling right now, and I want to put this question into your head. What is it in you? What's inside The forgotten fridge, the buried fuel tank, the sealed up tomb of your life. What do you need to actually do the hard work of going inside to find so that you can take it out, examine it, expose it to the cleansing, healing power of God's light and the Holy Spirit's air? One of the most striking things about the behavior of Jesus in the New Testament is how perseveringly he moves toward the stink in people. And now, this is just counterintuitive for most human beings in general but in the time in which Jesus lived and given who he was it's even more amazing and I want you to think about this with me see in Christ's time Jewish people and holy people in particular holy people like rabbis remember Jesus is a rabbi they were obsessed with cleanliness They did everything in their power to keep their distance from rotting things, which is why they never went near lepers, for example. They took great pains to avoid being tainted by contact, even brushing past anything that was dead or decaying in any way. But not Jesus. We see Jesus moving toward the leper to touch them. We see Jesus moving towards Lazarus in the tomb. He moves that way even though he is given a complete warning by Martha. Don't go there. Malodorous doesn't begin to describe what Lazarus is like now. Why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus move towards people like this? Well, in this particular narrative, we were given the answer early. We were told early on. That Jesus loved Lazarus. He, he loved him. He loved him no matter what his condition was. Jesus was for this man. And this, I think, reminds us of another very important ingredient in the process of transformation. Transformation is best advanced... By love. I mean, sometimes we try and change people by other mechanisms. We try to change them by scolding them, by pointing out their flaws. By condemning them, humiliating them, flagellating them into changing. It's a very common strategy in our day and age to try and bring change that way. But the story of Lazarus and the history of humanity suggests, I think, that genuine transformation, the thing that brings about the reversal, is much more often advanced by the experience of being truly and deeply and sacrificially loved than anything else. what got through to me when I was a hard-bitten atheist 18 year old hating the world it was the sacrificial deep real love of a group of young Christians that God used to reach my heart and to begin the process of change I, I, I am so sorry that, that the church has sometimes been a place where, where people pretended that there was nothing rotting in them at all because they were so sure that no one really loved them just as I am, as the old hymn says. I, I'm sorry that some Bible studies in small groups can go on for years and no one actually ever really airs there what is truly in their tombs out of fear of rejection. Or out of pride. I'm sorry that when some people do emit a a certain stink, and let's face it, some people do. They just emit a certain kind of fume that we don't want to go near to. I'm sorry that when that happens, when people talk about what is decaying in their life sometimes or what has died there, some church people respond by holding their nose and closing the door and walking away. I'm sorry that this happens because it isn't the way of Jesus at all. I think we know we're meant to be like him. I know that we think we're we know we're meant to be the safest community on earth for people to admit their need of transformation. I think we understand that we are never to be a club for saints but always a hospital for sinners. For as Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus loves sinners. It's good news for me. And for you too. But it's important to realize as we say this, that, that God still wants to see us get well. The kind of love that Jesus has for us is not a laissez fair, indulgent, whatever goes. You just keep going and doing that kind of love. As Billy Graham so often preached, God loves you and me just as we are, but too much to leave us that way. That's the way God loves us. And John chapter 11 makes it clear that Jesus wasn't content to leave Lazarus just as he was moldering in the grave. Jesus wanted to see Lazarus transformed and he wants to see you and me totally healthy too. As Mary and Martha felt, sometimes that healing work is a whole lot slower than we would like it to be. Uh, it, it is a long process of healing. And this points us, I think, to the final truth about life change that I want to underline for today. Transformation requires perseverance. How many of us wish that, that people uh, could just come to Jesus, get baptized, and then instantly become squeaky, clean Christians? We wish that we or somebody that we know would just come to church, would see the light, and leave completely changed. I know a few people that have brought friends or spouses into this kind of a building thinking that, oh, if they just come in here, they'll be changed overnight. People have sometimes actually taken Jesus' famous words, you must be born again, as if he were describing a process by which you just accept an idea in your head, you say a few of the right words, and you pop out all clean and sweet-smelling and talcum-powdered up in the stinky places. People talk that way about the process of conversion. But have you ever witnessed an actual birth? I know you were all there. Uh, But it's, it's a slimy, messy, bloody process. And if you count the gestation part, it's a long, involved, complicated kind of process. It takes time for new life to be born. And even with the resurrection of Lazarus or of Jesus that follows, it took a frustrating amount of time for redemption to take its full effect. Let's remember that as we deal with ourselves and as we work with other people in our lives. People just don't get over soul sickness quickly. I will probably spend the rest of my life in recovery. From a lot of things. I'm going to probably need your patience. And your perseverance. I know my family does. Uh, For a very very long time. Because of this sin-sick notion I got early on in life that I I am really only acceptable and okay if I perform at a crazy high level of competence and, and caring that makes me into something of a workaholic. And some of the fumes of that sickness, as much as I work on this and ask for God's help, some of the fumes from that sickness will probably hang around me, be part of my story, annoy other people, until I stand with Jesus in glory one day and he completes the healing. But here's the truth that I hang on to. Here's the truth that I hope you will hang on to. One day, you and I, if we keep putting ourselves in the life of Jesus and allow him into us, one day we're not going to stink anymore. One day, we will be beautiful, fragrant instruments whose music perfectly blesses others and glorifies God. And so in the meantime, we just have to remember this. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. The Bible tells us that. We can absolutely count that he, on the fact that he is with us he will work within us over time. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But for the rest of us, the call is to transform. The call is to change. To take the specific steps we can take to cooperate with God in the process of our ultimate redemption our ultimate resurrection and healing. And what those practical steps are that we can take is the exciting inquiry that we will get to pursue when we gather here at Christ Church next week. Please pray with me. Lord God, we just marvel at the way you move at your passion for people, at your willingness to stand at the door and knock, that if anyone opens the door, you will come in to be with them and they with you. So give us the courage, Lord, to open the door to let you see inside, to look inside, to open ourselves to you and to trust in others and to seek the grace that can heal us and make us new. This we pray in Christ's name. And all God's people said, Amen.